Welcome to this week's serving of Oyster Stew, a mix of financial services commentary and insights. Each week, we'll discuss what is happening in the industry based on what we see as we work with regulators and clients. We hope you come away with the knowledge and tools to help you make the best decisions for your firm's future. Well, hi, everybody. This is Buddy Doyle. I'm Chief Executive Officer of Oyster Consulting. I also have the pleasure of running the firm's governance, risk, and compliance team. And we're joined today by Ed Wegener, Managing Director of Oyster Consulting. And Ed is also a former SVP and Midwest Regional Director from FINRA, uh, which was Ed's last job before joining us. So welcome, Ed. Thanks, buddy. I'm uh, really happy to be here and excited to be joining Oyster's team. Ed, maybe you could start off by sharing a little bit about your background so that folks can understand the perspective you bring uh, to topics for broker-dealer compliance and risk. Sure. Um, so I, I've been with FINRA for um, just about 22 years. I started in 1998. I started as an examiner in uh, what at the point at that point was NASD in their Chicago district office. And um, since then, I've had a number of leadership positions within the Chicago district office, ulti- ultimately becoming, uh, as you had mentioned, a regional director of the Midwest. So in that role, I was responsible for leading the Midwest risk assessment, examination and investigation programs for the region. Uh, But I also had the opportunity to work on several um, national initiatives, including the development of uh, FINRA's risk-based examination program, uh, the development of FINRA's cybersecurity exam program. And I also uh, most recently was involved in the development and the leadership of FINRA's digital asset program. So I really enjoyed my time there. Um, It really provided me an opportunity to get exposure to a large variety of types of firms, different types of business, and uh, a number of different issues that that firms face on a day-to-day basis with respect to their compliance programs. Well, I'm excited about having your background and experience uh, coming into the firm and and your ability to help our clients go through all these hot topics. Um, And boy, there's, there's probably a series of podcasts we can do out of uh, that list of, of things that you're responsible for or were at FINRA. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about the risk assessment process. I've, we often talk to our clients, some are large, some are small, and they all are like, well, I think, you know, risk assessment, that sounds like big firm to me. Uh, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about how FINRA's approached risk assessment and, and their decision-making process. And uh, and that'll help uh, our listeners understand maybe things they ought to think about doing. Sure, it's definitely been a very interesting evolution as the exam program has you know continued to adapt. Um, when I first started with Finra, um, I remember that when we used to think about things such as you know how often we should conduct an exam and what we should review when we do conduct an exam, um, it was very a, a very simple process. You know, in terms of frequency. It was really dependent on what the firm's net capital category was, which really didn't have a lot of um, applicability to the the firm's risk. Um, And when it came to the things that we would scope on an exam and the types of things that we review, it was pretty static. We we would look at the same things pretty much on every examination, regardless of the type of firm, the types of customers they serviced, and the products that they sold. 
Um, over time, that has become much more sophisticated and much more effective. Um, the exam program has evolved to become much more risk-based, and as a result of that, um, FINRA, like most regulators, have developed fairly sophisticated risk assessment and scoring to help in their decision making about things like which firms to review, how frequently to conduct examinations, what to focus on during those examinations, and importantly, what branch offices to focus on, what products they'll look at, and what representatives to review. Um, so that the, the the risk assessment process has become much more involved, much more sophisticated, but I do think there's a lot of opportunities for firms to have influence over how the regulators perceive risk at their firms. And a couple of things that, that come to mind and really taking the time to understand the particular risk that the regulators are concerned about. You know, for FINRA in their risk assessment process, they've identified nine high level risks that they focus and score. Knowing what those nine risks are, I think is really important um, to having a good understanding and being able to influence um, the regulator's perception of risk, especially at FINRA. Um, making sure that the firm has strong controls over those areas that have been identified. And then importantly, and this is where I think I've seen some firms do a really good job of this and other firms that um, that haven't, is educating the regulator about the controls that the firm has in place and how those controls mitigate the risk. Because I think that if the regulator believes that the firm has strong controls in, 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 um, over the risks that they're concerned about, that that goes a long way in terms of helping them feel more comfortable that they could do exams maybe less frequently, that the, that they can more narrowly scope and focus their examination. So I do think that there are a lot of opportunities for firms to, to influence that. At FINRA, the risk assessments are done by individuals that um, you may recall uh, being known as regulatory coordinators. These were the point of contacts that each firm had at FINRA. They're now called risk analysts, which is much more fitting to, to their role. Um, so these analysts are responsible for formally assessing and scoring the risks at firms. And I think it's really important for firms to take the time to build strong relationships with their assigned analysts and to actively engage in a dialogue about the controls that firms have in place. I've seen firms set up periodic meetings with the risk analysts just to go over what's new with the firm, talk about controls, and to also really get a sense from the regulators and from the analysts, what are the concerns that at um, FINRA or, you know, in the case of the SEC, what the SEC is concerned about, and using that to help develop and continue to refine the controls that firms have. Great. When I think about risk and how we built Oyster Solutions in particular, we took a classic approach to risk where we look at the inherent risk of a particular issue, whether that's a product risk, geographic risk of our clients, dealing with ages of clients, different types of clients, and kind of get, get a hard look at where you believe the, the actual risk is just by doing what you do or being in the business that you're in. And then we take a look at policies and procedures and the outcome of the testing that we're doing and try to get a, a sort of mitigating control score uh, to go along with that inherent risk. And where there's uh, 
there's you know risk that is uncontrolled. Uh, that residual risk is where we spend a lot of time. How different is that from from what Fenra is doing? It's it's almost exactly how the analysts go about assessing the risk at firms. So what they'll do is they'll use the information that they have about the different products a firm sells and the riskiness of those products, the different customer types that the firm has, you know, whether the firm focuses on institutional clients, which might be less risky, or um, senior customers, which, you know, are more vulnerable and, and um, pose greater risk. Um, looking at things like the makeup of the registered reps at a firm and their backgrounds and um, the overall culture at the firm to get a sense of the inherent risk at the firm. But as I mentioned before, and as you mentioned, you know, an important part of that is how do the firms mitigate those risks? What controls do they have in place to address those? And then really using that to determine, well, what's the risk after you take those controls into account? Um, and really focusing the risk scoring on that residual risk, which is important because if you think there, there may be firms out there that are involved in some fairly risky activities or risky areas, but they have very strong controls over those areas and therefore the residual risk might not be as high as it otherwise would be. Whereas you might have a firm that's engaged in some less risky activity, but their controls are awful and their residual risk might be higher than the first firm. So that's important for FINRA to, to consider when um, they do this risk assessment and determining you know, how they're going to approach each of these firms. And you know, the, the approach that you said that firms should be using in terms of assessing their own risks, I think, is exactly the way they should be doing it to align with how the regulators are perceiving risk, but then also making sure that the firms are taking a look and understanding what are the areas that um, the regulators are concerned with? Finner has been very transparent about that process. I know that they it, they um, did a discussion, which is on their website, with two of their executive vice presidents from the exam program, Mike Rafino and Bill Wallman, where they went down the nine risks in the hierarchy and talked about the different ways that they view risk and how they um, how the analysts assess those risks. So knowing what the risks are understanding the how the regulators are approaching those risks are, are important and then using that to kick off you know how you're going to control and mitigate those risks through your controls and Ed could you maybe reel off the top of your head the nine risks that Fenra is looking at sure sure and again these are high level risks and within each of these risks there are a number of different factors under them. But the scoring really happens at the at this this higher level, and so the risks that they're focusing on uh, are really broken up into business conduct and financial and operational risk from a high level. Um, under business conduct, there are areas such as sales risk, fraud risk, um, anti-money laundering risk, um, operational risk, which kind of straddles between business conduct and, and financial. Um, and in the financial space, there's uh, liquidity risk market risk, capital risk, the typical net capital risk, um, credit risk, as well as uh, customer protection risk or um, the reserve computation that firms do. So those are the nine risks that they look at from a high level. All right. So those of you listening, that's the nine risks they're looking at from a very high level. Obviously, the devil's in the details in all of those as to you know, how you get to your own version of, of liquidity risk or market risk or fraud risk. Uh, and that really comes down to the tools and 
that, that you have at your disposal and how you deploy them, uh, as well as the kind of business that, that you're doing in terms of, you know, if you're an introducing firm, it's obviously much different from customer protection rule than, uh, than if you're a, an investment bank that never touches money, than if you're self-clearing. And so, uh, so all those things will go into consideration and so when they take those uh, nine levels of, of risk or nine categories of risk, if you will, and bring them in, I'm sure they apply their own judgment. But, but the outcome you mentioned, you know, they, they look at what they're going to look at in exams and, and the frequency of, of exams. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how that influences the examination process? Yeah, I mean, it, it really, from the examination perspective, in addition to it identifying how frequently they're going to conduct the examinations, and typically they won't go beyond four years for the lowest risk firm, although there's been talk about potentially um, looking at alternatives. Uh, but importantly, it really helps shape the scope of the examination. So that's where the examination planning starts. The examiners are provided the risk assessment, so they know exactly what the analysts have been reviewing. They know exactly um, how the analysts have assessed the risk at a particular firm. To the extent that the analysts know about the controls that the firm has in place, you know, that's other information that they provide to the examiners. And it really starts the process of scoping the examinations out. Um, one of the big changes that FINRA has made over time to its examination program, and I think technology has really been a, a great driver for this, is that they spend a lot more time before they come on site in doing analytics and assessment to really narrow the scope of the examinations. So the process has changed such that you'll get, you'll, uh, they'll announce an exam and they've probably already started doing a lot of background work and a lot of analytics. But they'll start asking for information and having you send things like electronic blotters and uh, ledgers and things like that so that they can conduct analytics against that and so that they can really focus their efforts on trying to pinpoint where they think the specific risk is that they need to examine so starting from the risk assessment doing all this analytical work before they come out and really letting that set the scope so the good thing about that is they should be spending a lot less time on-site at your firm because of all this work that they're doing. Uh, but they're also going to have a much better sense of where they think the issues might be. So when they come out to the firm, they're going to be much more targeted and focused in areas. They're going to be asking about specific transactions, about specific reps, to the extent that there's a complaint that they're concerned about, really focused on those things. So I think it's a much more efficient way to conduct an examination, but also a lot more um, effective. Um, one of the things that that they've been very focused on in the past, and I think continue to be, is on the assessment of branch office locations. So firms with large branch office networks have probably seen on examinations recently that the examiners will conduct on-site examinations, and they're moving to doing some more off-site examinations of branch offices, but doing more assessments of the, the locations where the activity is actually taking place. And that's another place where the analytics and the assessments come into play. Um, they do a lot of analytics to determine what are the branch offices that they think that um, pose the greatest risk and what is it about those branch offices that creates that risk. And so then when they go and conduct the branch offices, there too, they're very much more focused. So 
the exams continue to evolve. Uh, there's a lot of new leadership at FINRA, so they're taking a look at the exam program and looking to see where they can evolve the programs to make them more effective. So I would anticipate that you're probably going to see some additional changes, uh, but it's all sort of in this evolution to make the programs more risk-based and targeted. All right. Well, thank you for for sharing that with us. I do think those uh, those nine risk categories are a place where our, our clients could spend a little bit more time, generally speaking, on the risk assessment side. I mentioned at the beginning that you know some of our our small, mid-sized clients are you know like hey, risk assessments. Those are things that big banks do and wirehouses and and you know we're just you know here with their you know, 400 reps, uh, just, you know, trying to help people meet their goals. Um, is there a line that, that FINRA looks at to say what, where, you know, you should really have a formal risk assessment process? They talked a lot about that a few years ago, risk assessments and enterprise risk assessments. Is there a too small an enterprise to, to, to have something like that? You know, I, 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 I think that even at the smallest firms, that approach of understanding the risks that are present and, and having controls in place to mitigate those risks, uh, that should be something that every firm does regardless of the size of the firm. The sophistication of those types of reviews and the formality of those types of reviews is clearly going to be um, greater um, depending on the nature of the risks and the size of the firm. But I would expect that, you know, even at the smallest firms, they should be thinking in terms of risks and importantly, how the regulators perceive the risks at their firms, uh, because they're they're conducting those risk assessments at firms of, you know, of, of all the firms that that are members of FINRA. So I think it's in a firm's best interest to to go through that process on a, a periodic basis. And then for the larger firms, clearly, they have a much more robust program. And I would also say, you know, I used to try to predict where FINRA was going to go back when I was regulated. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was licensed and worked at a reasonably large firm with, with a lot of branches. And I always went to the colorful CRDs, right? So where are the employees with colorful CRDs? And I would go to, you know, recent customer complaints and kind of air perspective on on those complaints, whether they were a hot topic or, you know, an anomaly in the in the firm or, or you know, sometimes they would one complaint would lead to a to a few. And we've all seen, you know, lawyers advertising on TV, sue your broker and things like that. Some of them are pretty effective. Um, but uh, and then I looked for anomalies in the types of products or business that might be happening in a particular branch where, you know, if you're a retail uh, oriented firm that does a lot of, you know, financial planning and kind of getting into the RIA space a little bit. And then you have one branch that's sort of a, an institutional middle office or, or running, you know, stock plans for, for firms and things like that, that, you know, that's a different thing with a different profile. Is that pretty close to how FINRA looks at, at risk? Yeah, you know, especially around sales risk and operational risk, you know, those are the types of things, you know, it's it, it's not changing the um, the drivers 
that they use to assess risk, they're always going to be focused on things like understanding the products, understand, taking a look at complaints and seeing where there might be issues, looking at the backgrounds of the reps. I think the sophistication is really developing around the tools that they have in order to conduct those assessments and the types of data that they get in um, in order to do that. So I think that those are, are definitely still areas to focus on. Another thing that's been a really great development with uh, both FINRA and the SEC is their transparency around what they're looking at. And so they regularly will publish examination priorities. Uh, they'll regularly publish things like uh, common examination findings. And also, you know, they publish disciplinary actions. So those are areas that I think are really good sources of information to look to and say, you know, what are the types of things that, that FINRA is looking at or that the SEC is looking at? And are those areas that I'm involved in? And if so, how are my controls um, in those areas? Because it, there's a fairly good chance if it's a priority in a given year that the regulators are going to come out and look at it if you have an exam scheduled for that year. Um, another thing, though, I would I would recommend is engaging in a dialogue with your contacts at the regulators, the, the risk analyst at FINRA, and talk to them, you know, ask them, you know, what are the things that you particularly care about for firms that are like me? And one of the things that FINRA has done in, in its recent examination restructuring is to reassign um, contacts, especially around the, the, the risk analysts, uh, based on the type of business that the firm is engaged in. So an individual who's responsible for doing risk assessments for an independent contractor retail firm would be different from somebody who's doing the risk assessments for a firm that's engaged in mergers and acquisitions and capital markets. Um, and, I, and the reason that they've done that is to develop a greater understanding by the risk analysts of those different industries. So one of the nice things about that is that those analysts can look across the firms that they're responsible for, which should look like your firm, and have a good sense of what they're seeing at those different firms, both in terms of the risks and the controls that they have in place. So I think they would be a great source of information and intelligence about you know, what it is that you should be looking at and what are some best practices that they're seeing in terms of controls. Yeah, I always found the coordinators back when they were called coordinators to be very good to talk to about things and, and have a conversation. They were never in gotcha mode with, with me and, and I know there's always that fear, right? of talking to a regulator because because you know if you're in the industry your perspective is they're the people that 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 come and and you get in trouble uh well, whereas I, really they're they're very good at, at helping to guide you i think importantly uh, that role the separation between that role and the examination program i think it's important for just that reason it does provide them an opportunity to do sort of an independent assessment of the risk but it also allows them to build a strong working relationship with the firms and, and hopefully firms after they've built those relationships have a, a greater comfort level about engaging with the risk analyst because I think that it would benefit both the regulator from the perspective of having a better sense of what the firm does but also the firms in, in order to influence the, the regulators in terms of educating them on the controls that they have in place. One thing, though, with the reassignments are a lot of the assignments of who an analyst is for a particular firm may have changed recently. So I think one of the things that firms really need to focus on is if they have had that change is to sort of rebuild that 
relationship with their analyst because it might be somebody new. So they might want to meet with them, talk about what's, you know, talk about, about the background of the firm, educate them on the controls, and really build relationships between the key people at the firm and the analyst. So thank you, Ed, again for your time. And thank you to our listeners for coming back. Thank you, buddy. Thanks again for listening to the Oyster Stew podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so we can continue to bring you resources to help you make the best decisions for your firm. If you're struggling with a topic and you'd like us to do a podcast on it, or you'd like a free consultation, feel free to reach out to us at 804-965-5400 or by visiting our website at oysterllc.com.